Well, on this Ash Wednesday, we recall our mortality. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. These old bodies will turn to dust. But there's more to it than that. Think about the image of ashes. Where do ashes come from? Well, ashes are all that remain when an object is completely consumed by a fire. And therefore, ashes are an image of devastation. And that's why in the scriptures, ashes not only symbolize our mortality or the frailty of life, but they also represent the expression of grief and loss. Think about the story of Job from the Bible. After Job loses everything, his home, his family, his possessions, his health, what does he do? He mourns by sitting in ashes. In Job chapter 2, he sits in ashes and he picks up a shard of broken pottery, which is the result of his house collapsing. And he uses that shard of pottery to scrape his skin, which is now covered in sores. And so he mourns the loss of everything while sitting in ashes. And what's rather remarkable about the scriptures is that God not only allows us to cry out to him in the midst of our pain and our suffering and to mourn the devastation of this life, but the scriptures give us words for actually expressing that lamentation. And so in Job chapter 30, for example, we, we have the words of Job where he says, I have become dust and ashes. In other words, everything I have, everything I ever cared about has been ripped away from me in a flash. And so ashes represent not only our mortality, but they also express our, our mourning, the grief and loss that we experience in this life. But that's not all. Because in the book of Job, his cry of mourning eventually turns into a prayer of confession. So in Job chapter 30, he says, I have become dust and ashes. But then in Job 42, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, he says, even though I haven't done anything wrong, I'm an innocent sufferer. I haven't done anything to bring this suffering and this evil into my life. Nevertheless, I repent because I recognize that I have been presumptuous. I've questioned God. I've stood in judgment over his wisdom, but now I repent in dust and ashes. I acknowledge that God is God and I am not. And I've spoken of things that I don't understand, and therefore I cover my mouth, he says. And I trust that you are good and that you, that you are at work for my good, even when I'm surrounded by the chaos and confusion of life in this world. And so it's altogether appropriate for us to receive ashes on this Ash Wednesday to remind ourselves of our mortality and the frailty of life and to mourn the brokenness of this world and the rebellion and failure within our own hearts. But then also we're called to repent, to do what Job did, to repent in dust and ashes, to turn from self towards Jesus in faith and to trust that even in the midst of the chaos and confusion of this world that God is at work for our good and he knows better than we sometimes think. Now, what I'd like to do tonight is continue our exploration of the authentic Jesus by considering how Jesus is presented to us as a fellow mourner over the brokenness of this world. He does not stand aloof. He's not immune to our suffering or our pain, but rather he enters into it. And in fact, he experiences it all even more deeply than we do. So Jesus mourns over our rebellion and our failure. He enters into our lament, but not only that, he does something about it. 
So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 13. You'll also find the passage printed in the order of worship. You can find it on page 873 of the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Well, I would suggest that this is a remarkable little passage because in these few short verses, we see all the great themes of the gospel contained. And so in our brief time together tonight, I'd simply like to reflect on what this has to tell us about rebellion, judgment, and love. In other words, this passage reveals to us the reality of human rebellion, the inescapability of the coming judgment, and yet the wonder of divine love. So let's look at each of those in turn. The, the passage opens with a group of Pharisees coming to Jesus and telling Jesus that Herod, the ruler over Galilee, wants to kill him. So get out of here. Herod is after you. He wants to put you to death. Now, Jesus is no friend of Herod. He calls him a sly and cunning fox, which, let me remind you, is not a compliment. But he is not overly concerned because he has a mission and nothing is going to detract him from accomplishing what he intends to do. And he hints that he knows that he's going to die. Do you see that? Jesus knows that he is going to perish. But he suggests it's not going to happen in Galilee at the hands of Herod. No, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. And then that sets up this rather famous lament over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing? Now, when you hear Jesus utter these words, you have to imagine Jesus speaking them with tears in his eyes. Jesus begins with this double, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which speaks not only of his pain as he mourns over the city of Jerusalem, but it also reveals his love. Think about when Jesus has a similar sort of conversation with his friend Martha in Luke chapter 10. Martha's busy working in the kitchen making preparations for Jesus and she's ticked off. Why? Because her sister Mary is not helping her in the kitchen but rather is sitting in the living room alongside the other disciples soaking in Jesus' teaching. And so she, Martha goes to Jesus and complains. Jesus, go tell Mary to come help me. And do you know what Jesus does, he responds with a double, Martha, 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 Martha. 
You are worried and anxious about many things, but there's only one thing that is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it shall not be taken away from her. In other words, he says, Martha, I love you, but you're worried about all the wrong things. All that really matters is that you focus on me. Or think of another time in 2 Samuel chapter 18, when Absalom, the son of King David is staging a coup and he's seeking to kill his own father in order to steal the throne from him. And when David finds out that his murderous son has ended up getting himself killed, David is not filled with rage. No, he mourns and he expresses both his pain as well as his love with a double Absalom, Absalom. Oh, my son, my son, I would have died for you Do you hear that? I love you, Absalom. I would have died for you, but I could not prevent you from taking this destructive path. And you see, that's exactly what Jesus is expressing through these words of lamentation. And here, Jerusalem represents all of us. He just as easily could stand here before us tonight and say, oh, New York, New York. Oh, how I would have done anything to rescue you and deliver you, but you were not willing You see, what Jesus is revealing is that there's something within our human hearts that actively rebels against God, resists God's movement in our lives. It's not just that there's something absent in our hearts, but rather there's something present. There's something that actively resists God because we think that we know best and therefore we refuse to listen to his guidance or his instruction. And therefore, we end up in all kinds of trouble. Now, if you're a parent of a child, you know something of what this is like. If, if you look at your kids, you can sometimes see that they're doing things that are bringing pain and sorrow into their lives, and you want to help them. You can see what they can't see. You, you want to help change the situation, and so you might say to them, well, look, if, if you just did this differently, then you would avoid all that hurt and pain, right? If you just prepared in advance, you you wouldn't be late, or if you developed a system and organized your things, you wouldn't lose this precious thing that means so much to you, or if you're just a little kinder, people might befriend you, right? So you, you step in and you offer to help, but what do our kids often do? They say, stop, Dad. I got this. I don't need your help. I know what I'm doing. I'm fine. You see, there's something actively rebellious about our hearts, and that's especially true when it comes to God. We don't want his advice. We don't want his instruction. We don't want him to help us. And he says to us, oh, my child, my child. Oh, how much I wish that I could prevent this from bringing sorrow and pain into your life, but you were not willing. And that's what Jesus is saying here specifically about the people in Jerusalem, but it's true of all of us. God repeatedly sent his prophets to warn and to guide, but his people refused to listen. You killed the prophets. You stoned those who were sent to you. You didn't want me. And therefore, on this Ash Wednesday, it's worth stopping and reflecting, well, how am I right now actively resisting God's movement in my life? How am I rebelling, either subtly or even aggressively? How are we saying, no, stop? I got this. I don't need your help. I know better. I know what I'm doing. I'm fine. How are we insisting on our own way? 
We all do this, and the problem is that Jesus knows that it's not going to end well for any of us, and therefore he warns us of the inescapability of the coming judgment. Now, the thing that you need to understand is that centuries before this, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision, and you can read about this in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11. Ezekiel has a vision where he sees the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, which represents his holy presence. It it came in the form of that fiery cloud, and he sees the glory of the Lord depart from the temple and then move east out of the city of Jerusalem. And so he sees this as a sign that will result in destruction. He sees that the glory of the Lord has departed. It's moved out of the temple and it's moved east out of the city of Jerusalem, leaving the city open to enemy attack. And now Jesus is revealing the the fulfillment of those words. He says the only way to avoid the coming judgment is to receive Jesus in the words of Psalm 118. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But if his people reject Jesus as the Messiah, well, then the glory of the Lord will depart. It will leave the temple and leave it open to destruction. And that's why he says, your house will be forsaken. Your house will be left desolate. The glory of the Lord will depart. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Within a few short decades after Jesus' death, in the year 70 AD, Rome rains destruction down upon Jerusalem and burns the temple down to the ground. Just as Jesus had forewarned, there would not be one stone left on top of another. The glory of the Lord had departed. And the New Testament commentator, Dale Bruner, says that this is the risk that any church faces, not just the temple in Jerusalem. Any church that is not centered on, thrilled by, and obedient to Jesus will be a house forsaken. The house will be left desolate. The glory of the Lord has departed. Now, we might look back on this scene, this episode in history, and think, well, how could the inhabitants of Jerusalem have been so stupid How could they have been so stupid? They had Jesus right there in front of them. They could see him with their own eyes. They could hear him with their own ears. And yet they refused to recognize him for who he really was or to hear and to listen to his words. And yet I would suggest that we're really no different. And in fact, we might even be in the same position. Maybe we're in an even better position because we have Jesus' words and his actions recorded for us, and not only that, we can benefit from centuries of reflection upon what those words and those actions mean. And one thing is crystal clear, that Jesus has warned us again and again that our actions have consequences. No one wants to believe that we will be held responsible for the lives that we've lived. We want to remain blissfully unaware that there will ever be any kind of future reckoning. We believe that this world is all there is. But you know who else thought that? You know who else also thought that this world is all there is? Karl Marx. And what did he say? He said, because this world is all there is, religion is the opiate of the people. And what did he mean by that? He said that religion, Christianity, religion is like a drug that lulls us into a state of passivity So rather than seeking real change in the world in which we live, we're filled with these false dreams, according to Marx, of a better world to come. 
But the Polish poet, Szesław Miłosz, who lived behind the Iron Curtain of Communism, turned Karl Marx's argument on its head. And he said, no, 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 the real opium of the people is not religion. The real opium of the people is the belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for all of our greed and betrayals and cowardice and murders, we will never be judged. You see, Christianity is the only religion in the world that offers justice, not only for the living, but also for the dead. Do you realize that? We live in a world that is very much concerned, rightly so, with the pursuit of justice. And we talk about pursuing justice right now for those who are living. But we can't do anything about those who have been violated or oppressed in the past. And you see, Christianity is the only religion in the world that offers justice, not only for the living, but for the dead. Because Christianity says that one day God is going to make things right. He is going to bring his justice to bear on this world. And therefore, all the perpetrators of injustice will be held to account. And all rights will be made wrong, somehow, some way. And so if we cannot get justice in this life, all we can do is appeal to the highest court and to entrust it into God's hands that God will judge the earth. He will make things right. And we should want that. Because we know that true justice is not something that we can reach through our own hands. We should want God to be a God of justice who brings his true impartial judgment to bear on the world. And yet if we acknowledge the appropriateness, the rightness of God's justice, we can't just leave it out there for others. We have to let it fall on ourselves too when we deserve it. But if that's the case, then what hope is there for any of us? Because if we are honest with ourselves, we know that not one of us could bear the scrutiny of God's judgment. But that's what brings me to my third point, which is the wonder of divine love. You see, in the middle of this lament, Jesus draws an image from a barnyard scene. And at first, this might sound a little strange. What is Jesus talking about? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. It may sound like a quaint agrarian image, but consider what Jesus is really imagining here. See, Jesus is alluding to the coming judgment as a consuming fire, even though he doesn't use that word. Now, if you've ever experienced a fire, you know that that is a terrifying thing to witness. And a fire that rolls through a barnyard would not only be frightening for people, but also for animals who are trapped. And in most situations, an animal would flee to safety. But there are some, there are some who would rather die in order to protect their young. And we have actually documented stories like this. See, Jesus drew these parallels from everyday life. He knew what he was talking about. If a fire rolls through a barnyard, you very well very well likely may find after the fact the burnt, charred, dead body of a mother hen who has been reduced to dust and ashes. And yet if you lift up that burnt corpse, you might just find her chicks alive who have been protected from the searing flames 
but only because of her sacrifice. And you see, Jesus uses this vivid and tragic image in order to explain his impending death, which we will remember on Good Friday. You see, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD was just a precursor of the real judgment yet to come. Jesus is telling us that there will be a terrible day when God does finally bring his justice to bear on this world, where he will bring, bring perpetrators to account for everything that we have thought and done and said that is wrong. And if we know that, then we know that we could not come out of that judgment unscathed. But Jesus offers a way out. Jesus is explaining that he is that mother hen who stretches out his arms on the cross so that we might take shelter under his wings. We can be protected from the searing flames of God's consuming judgment, but only by taking shelter under Jesus' charred body. Do you see that on the cross, Jesus was reduced to dust so that he might lift us up out of the ashes. He has done everything that is necessary in order to rescue us from our rebellion, from our sin, from our recalcitrance, and from our failure. And so the question is, what are you going to do about it? Jesus says to the people of Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, Jesus is not trying to scare us straight here. He's trying to woo us with his love. Do you see the wonder of his love? I don't want Jesus to ever say to you or to me, I did everything to rescue you and deliver you. I could have prevented all of this, but you were not willing. I would have scooped you up a thousand times, but you didn't let me. So don't you see, on this Ash Wednesday, don't only remember your mortality and the frailty of life. Don't only mourn the brokenness and the sad state of affairs within this fallen world. But do what Job did. Repent in dust and ashes. Acknowledge that God is God and you are not. Acknowledge that you and I, we have spoken of things that we don't understand and therefore we cover our mouths, we stop talking and we start listening. And we're willing to do what he says because we trust that he's good, that he loves us and that he will do anything necessary in order to rescue and save us. And so on this Ash Wednesday, don't rebel against him, but receive him by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.